Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. While there is a lot of misplaced hype about tools that will replace programmers, there are a lot of tools that can handle a lot of the mundane, boring code that many developers have to write. Low-code and no-code tools can often make it easy to stand up small applications that meet a business need but aren't worth the expense of hiring a professional developer. In this episode, we discuss some of the areas where no-code and low-code tools are currently in use and where those things are likely to interact with code that you are writing. In the aftercast, we'll be discussing best practices for making your apps work well with no-code and low-code tools. But before we get started, Will, what have you been doing a lot of lately? Uh, team leadership. <laughs> I uh, got moved up, up to team lead or up at an angle. I'm not sure. It's it's not exactly a increase in grade so much as it is it's an increase in responsibility because our team lead moved up to product owner. So, you know, somebody had to take it. And, and so I'm having to, uh, you know, kind of manage uh, our workflow and you know, a lot of the meetings and those kind of things and the practices of my small team. So yeah, it's been good. Been a lot of work. Spent a lot of time after hours trying to think about stuff. Cause even though I had it in my head that, you know, this would probably happen someday, it happened a little quicker than I was expecting. And, uh, you know, I had to adjust a bit, had to uh, also get away from using post-it notes to organize things. Cause, uh, that dog doesn't hunt when you got six people. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's been good. So how about you? Well, obviously, I am back from my trip to Albania. 26 hours of travel last Tuesday from when we left the hotel till I got home. That was exhausting. Uh, The trip was great, though. I met a lot of amazing people, got to practice speaking the language, and made several new friends. Most of the people over there also speak English, so it wasn't too difficult to communicate, though we did have translators who helped me with my Albanian. I'm just still worn out from the whole thing and just everything going on because I got back and we had vacation Bible school at church. And I had said I would help out with the expectation that I wouldn't have to be there like the first night or two. And then they needed me the first night. And so I got back on Tuesday, Wednesday night, I was at church. And so, yeah, that was, oh, that was stressful, but I made it on the trip. We spent most of our days ministering to people. That was very rewarding. A few days we got to go out into the Roma or uh, some people call them gypsy community, did things like food distribution. Uh, We went into one area where they're still rebuilding from the earthquakes and provided uh, water filtration systems for people to use in their homes uh, and then train them how to set them up. Honestly, that's where I used my most Albanian was in training them 
because when we were out ministering to people, we had the translators right there with us. But in doing this, like everybody was like literally one on one showing them how to do stuff. And so I told the the translators, I'm like, hey, I can I can make this happen. Like I can explain what to do because it's a very simple process to set it up. It's like I can explain what to do without needing someone. So I actually got to got to do that. And so that was cool having some conversations in another language. That was that was really neat. What was cool is uh when people would say stuff to me, I understood what they were saying. Yeah. It's good feels. I've been getting that with my class a lot and it really helps. It makes you feel better about the whole process like you're actually learning stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now with this trip, normally they have these really big festivals at the end of the week, but because of COVID, they couldn't do that. So we did this online version of it instead. I was very excited. They let me be one of the camera people for both of the festivals. So like, I got to run a camera that tens of thousands of people saw. So that was really cool. Also, unrelated to the mission trip, though affected by it, I completed the hiking marathon yesterday. Basically, I had the month of July to get 26.2 miles in at uh, Barfield Park here in Murfreesboro. And I got it all with one day to spare, having spent 10 days of the month out of the country. So, and then another day of rest and when it rained and stuff. So, put in some effort, doubled up a couple of days to make that work. But I got my 26 miles in. So that's cool. Saving money is hard, especially when there's no code involved. Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Yeah, and just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you not only establish a real plan, but take action on that plan so that you can live your best life. Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances with the help of Level Up. There is a compounding impact of making better financial decisions that will easily pay for itself. Yeah, Level Up has a unique pricing model that Lucas has designed to help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. And that's really nice because I I have looked at it and we've referred people to it because whether you're starting your career as a junior developer or you are a senior developer who is thinking, hey, I need to start preparing for my retirement. Anywhere in between, Lucas has a plan for you. Lucas is also a fiduciary for his clients, which means he's not here to sell you a product, but to help guide you to a better financial situation. And guys, you can find some fun and free resources. Also learn more about uh, what it is that you get from a financial advisor or a financial planner at levelupfinancialplanning.com. No-code and low-code tools are being used more and more frequently. Whether it's because a company didn't have enough developers on staff to meet a critical business need, which is practically all of them, or whether an entrepreneur started a brand new company and needed to just get something working, or because developers saw that a no-code tool solved a thorny problem, you're going to eventually find a situation where one of these tools is in your environment. 
As a developer, if you do run into these tools, you need to know why they're being used, what value they actually offer the business, and how to integrate with them. Uh, you can't just go and say, okay, well, let's just rip this out and replace it. It may be there for a really good reason. Now, a lot of times we talk about how development environments are increasingly heterogeneous uh, with respect to language. <laughs> yeah, I said that weirdly on purpose. But not enough attention is actually given to the fact that environments show even more variance when you start looking at the larger set of tools that is required to manage and run business processes. In probably the majority of organizations, some things will be custom built by developers, whereas other things may be commercial packages that could be hosted on site or available as software as a service, or maybe even a mixture of both. It's very rare for an organization to not have workflows that are entirely created by and maybe even still managed by non-technical people. Using third-party tools for various purposes. No-code and low-code tools fill a set of niches that have been with us for a very long time. However, uh, with more recent uh, investment coming into tech, along with the increasing complexity and cost of enterprise business solutions, an opportunity is developed for companies to build more general purpose software that can be heavily customized for the purposes of individuals and individual companies. By the way, this is customization that's not like, hey, change the color on this button. It's like, here's a graphical editor for a workflow. And you line up all the pieces and tell how, how stuff goes through the pipe. In effect, common application usage patterns such as CMSs, CRUD apps, orchestration tools, dashboards, payment processing, those kind of things have become a lot more democratized and they often don't really require custom development to actually work with them and you know, set them up and, and run them. While you could look at this as you know, kind of constituting a risk to your career, the advent of these tools also means that instead of just working on boilerplate code for the rest of your life, you can actually focus on the most useful and valuable areas of the application you're building. You know, these tools enable a lot of businesses to get off the ground that would not ever take off if they had to, you know, wait on developers to build something. So guys, in this episode, we're going to start by discussing kind of the why behind no-code, low-code solutions. You know, why a business would choose to use these solutions for parts of their workflow instead of building their own thing. Then the bulk of the episode, we're going to discuss a number of areas where low-code and no-code solutions are starting to be used in business environments, including how you will likely be interacting with them. And uh, if you guys stick around in the aftercast, we'll discuss the situations that call for introducing low-code and no-code tools into your stack, as well as how to evaluate the tools so that you don't get burned. So we'll start off with the why, because uh, that's always the first question anybody asks, especially if it's a five-year-old. <laughs> why? Yeah, why? Because uh, that's just the way things are. <laughs> so there, there's a number of reasons why a business might choose uh, low-code and no-code. And, you know, we kind of expand on this a little bit more in the aftercast too, but let's start out here. Uh, the first thing is, is that it's cheaper. 
Uh, developers are expensive. At least I hope all the developers that listen to this podcast are expensive because you should. <laughs> and this is especially true when you start talking about recurring costs that happen every time somebody changes their mind, right? Because they need to change some workflow and now the developer has to code it. So a lot of companies don't really want to have to pay that cost every single time they make a change. Yeah. No. I I can absolutely see that. And that's that's something that even without the low code, no code, I've looked at with the with places I've worked where I've seen areas I'm like there was this one annual report that had to be run and they had to get a developer because it was like a 15-year-old app or something. They had to get a developer to go in and replace a PDF, like page one of the PDF that gets generated because like page one was, here are the training dates for next year when they generated it. And I was like, you know, in the same amount of time that it takes for this process to go through the change request and like, the two-week process, someone who's familiar with VB, no, as in someone not me, could actually make it so that you don't have to do this anymore. They just can go in and type in the dates and it generates that PDF for them. Saving a lot of time and several hours of developer work. Yeah, every year. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, along with that, uh, these tools tend to be faster to set up. It takes a while to get a development environment set up and actually get where you can produce useful work for somebody, right? Because you got to do all the authentication. You got to get a place to host it. You got to get your server certificates. You've got to you know, pick your runtime, get a database set up. You know, da, da, da. There's all this crap that comes with it before you can write a, a single line of code that provides business value. And with these tools, a lot of times, like you just click through and you know, like you're, you're stood up, you have all the boilerplate stuff there. And then you go through and you start actually creating the business value and you could be there within an hour or two. Now, in addition to being cheaper and faster, there are other financial reasons why you might want to, or your company might choose to go with a low code, no code solution. It's easier to get approval for smaller operational expenses than for the big projects. If it's going to take one person two weeks to set this up versus a team of people six to eight months to build a solution. Yeah. I mean, it kind of comes down to the whole OPEX versus CAPEX thing. Yeah. Right. Like if you're doing something that is a operational expense, you write that off against taxes. But as soon as it's enough of a big expense, they're going to want to you know, kind of break that up over several years. They're going to want to do a whole bunch of accounting shenanigans around it. And so all these other people are involved that have nothing to do with the project. And it's just, it very quickly becomes not worth it unless you really get a huge upside from it. Also, it's a lot of the companies will pick these tools because it's easy to disconnect if the thing doesn't work. So like the, if the tool doesn't meet the needs, they bail. And they quit paying for it. And they're done. They don't have to fire anybody. Uh, they don't have to reassign anybody. They don't have to you know, go explain to accounting that, well, you know, I know you amortized this over X number of years, but now we're not doing it. So you got to go fix the books and all this other stuff, right? Like it's just, it's a lot easier on everybody. Speaking of easy, it also outsources the risk. So 
if there's say like regulatory concerns such as like payment so PII around that that's now the vendor's problem i know the last place i worked we absolutely used a third party for all our payment processing because we didn't want to deal with it yeah i don't know a whole lot of people that do the thing about it is is people will decide okay this is cheaper to try to roll your own payment solution. And it doesn't take very long before you kind of get hit in the face with the fact that you really drastically underestimated how bad it actually is. You know, it's not the nineties anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. And you definitely don't want to code like it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you do, (laughs) uh, your system's going to get owned like you just installed windows 98 on the open internet. And the final reason is that it folks, frankly, can be a bit annoying. Really? Can we? Yeah, we can. I mean, to other departments, <laughs> right? Like that's, and they annoy us. Uh, well, yeah. A lot of times there's friction, right? Like your support team probably grumbles about you when you're not looking and you grumble about them, right? Like that's a thing that happens with just moving parts coming into contact. And using low code and no code tools, people can often sidestep that friction until they're in a better political position. You know, they've built something that works. It's now integrated into their processes and they can say, hey, this saves us a bunch of money. Now you fix it, IT. And now you're in charge of, of managing it now that we've stood it up. And and so that's a scenario that you're going to see play out over and over again. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely see that. All right, guys. So now that we've kind of talked about the reasons behind or the why a business would choose to go with the no-code or low-code solution, we're going to spend the rest of this episode sort of discussing the areas where these solutions are being used and how you're going to be interacting with them. Yeah, and the first one is something that a lot of folks think they can do themselves and then they find out they can't, and that is content management systems. The reason you have low-code and no-code content management systems is that you know, companies years ago used to roll their own, right? But now they don't, right? WordPress is a great example of why that is. It's fairly straightforward to set up. I have plenty of problems with it, but it does work for a lot of use cases, especially if you can maintain it. And WordPress has been around forever. Now, there are a lot of newer CMS systems that are kind of a different breed. So they're built with a different understanding, you know, that They basically understand that companies need to separate the display of content from the workflow required to produce that content. And as a result, um, you know, instead of, you know, like back in the day when you ran uh, WordPress, .NET, Nuke, those kind of things, you're more likely to see things that are headless CMS systems. So this is stuff like Ghost, Strappy, uh, Netlify has their own CMS. In fact, we have a full list that we need to actually put in the show notes and we'll do that. Yeah, it'll it'll be in the the links in the show notes. Yeah, when I was over in in Albania, uh, one of our translators, she and I got to talking because she's a web designer, and I was like, "Oh, that's really cool!" I'm like, my new job is front end development, so I was like, "Oh, hey, so what do you guys use?" And she's like, "Oh, mostly WordPress." I'm like, "That makes sense. What they're doing, that's all they need. They don't need the customization with the stuff that I'm doing." Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, is you can write custom code and have it run in WordPress and use that environment. That's, I mean, it's a great example of a low-code environment in a lot of people's cases. In some people's cases, it's a just it's a straight-up development environment. And 
you know, it kind of runs the gamut. But yeah, there's a reason these tools exist. Yeah. So like most content management systems, especially the headless ones, offer a wide range of ways to interact with them. Not just the console thing that we use with WordPress, but you know, this could be a RESTful API and uh, GraphQL kind of on the read-write side. Uh, there's like varying degrees of capabilities with webhooks in this set of tools as well. Yeah, so when you change a piece of content, it pushes out to other things. Yeah. So it can interact with the rest of a larger ecosystem. And that's really what a lot of the low-code, no-code stuff is is getting really compelling with. You know, when you're building software for a company, uh, these types of CMSs are often very useful when content production is a cost center for the business rather than a revenue center. In other words, the, the company spends money creating content because they have to have support documentation or they have to have you know some other piece, not, okay, it's a media company. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Or they may have people who, who write articles and stuff as top of the funnel. Yeah. So kind of bring people in and I can absolutely see that. I recently ran into an issue with uh, a company we we use at the church who they made some changes and their support documentation did not get updated. And then I had to go in and use it. And I'm like, it's not there. Like this whole like settings section was just gone because they had integrated it into the different parts of the application. And I'm like, okay, so I sent them a, an email to their service and they're really responsive. They come back with, Oh, Hey, check out this tutorial. And I'm like, I did. It's literally not there. I said a a screenshot and they're like, Oh, they've already rolled that out. We need to update our tutorial. (laughs) Yeah. And, And that's another interesting thing that, you know, that I didn't put in here is a lot of these will integrate with things like feature flag systems. And so mm-hmm. they can read like your your launch darkly flags for your app and go, hey, this thing's rolled out now. Show this piece of content instead of this other one. Or it's rolled out for this client. Show yeah. this piece of content, not the other one. That's good. Can you imagine hand rolling that yourself? That would be a pain, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. That would be continued employment is what that's called. <laughs> <laughs> that's another word for pain. Yeah. So the next area is data entry. And the reason this exists is kind of always has, really. I mean, you you had way back when MS Access. But uh, if a system has a simple enough data structure, there's often not a lot of reason to waste resources building some fully featured data entry environment. Companies are a lot better off just using a third-party tool with a good UI instead of some kind of crummy in-house, I should honestly say cruddy in-house because yeah. it's like mostly crud anyway. We just need to find, you know, we need to make up an acronym for crap for what those apps tend to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, as mentioned before, uh, this sort of thing was a common use case for access and it still is, frankly. I know plenty of people, in fact, I know some people that have apps that they've built with an access front end and it talks to a SQL backend, and those are pretty awful, but they still run. You know, a lot of programs that are in use today had their start as access databases. You know, somebody built up a tool just for them, and then they realized, hey, we can talk to this database, and we can actually make an app 
does that. And now we have a real program like, but it's Genesis was in access and it eventually got moved out. Yeah. Not with, with access, but I've seen similar stuff with like the Oracle version. Yeah. Or Fox pro. Yeah. Whereas basically like just this really, really terrible UI just sitting on top of an Oracle database with like, Oh my goodness. All the business logic in SQL and replaced a few of those already in my time. And I've had to interact with others and it's a pain. Yeah. And, you know, I will say access is still around. It's still very usable. Um, but there are some other contenders that work well in a more modern environment. You know, access has problems when you get more than about three or four users. Mm-hmm. Stuff gets bad really quick. Maybe it's gotten a little bit better in recent years, but it's not great. But there are tools that are more native to the web. Uh, there's stuff like Airtable, Directus, which I've used both of, uh, and QuickBase, which I've not, but I watched some uh, videos when I was um, preparing for this outline. And it's it's really impressive what a lot of these tools can do for you. Yeah. And most of them offer at least some APIs and webhook capabilities, though you're probably going to have to pay for that usage. And in some cases, you can even directly access the underlying database. Yeah, uh, Directus is a great example of this. It, it sits on top of a Postgres database. So like the functionality you would want if access was being developed now, it does. And you can still hit the underlying data structure, which is really, really nice. Mm-hmm. The next area where you're going to run into these tools is it, it's hard to really come up with a name for this. It's like app glue, or they'll call it uh, orchestration, which really sounds like a a lot more impressive than it is. Uh, It's basically sticking stuff to other stuff. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I guess it's glue. And there's a reason this exists. Uh, A lot of times business people want to move data between applications or make one app respond to something that happens in another app. And they don't want to hire a programmer to wire it up because the programmer is going to be like, oh, it's going to cost this much for this SDK and wiring this in and I'm going to have to figure this out and, and all that. They just want to go, hey, when I change this thing in Evernote, put it over here on the website. And so there's, you know, there's a pretty good reason for that. Um, and a lot of times they also want to avoid risks due to uh, platform changes. Uh, so they may want a, a way to um, insulate themselves from you know, potential risk to their business when somebody changes their API. And all of a sudden, all their stuff breaks and they got to drop everything they're doing. Like business people are not happy when that, that occurs. This is something that most companies have been doing for a long time and has often kind of resulted in some interesting, hacky solutions as they tried to get systems to play nicely and interactly, interact together. This has gotten especially fun in the modern web with all the security considerations and the intermittent failures that are common in a distributed environment. Yeah, so like my first job in college, we got data in on nine-track tapes from the state of Tennessee, and it was in EBSDIC with packed bits, right? And so we had to run it through the tape reader twice, once to get the ASCII because it would convert it. And that way we didn't have to have a program for it. And then once to get the EBSIDIC so we could get the pack bits out. Then we had a, a command line app that would take that, turn it into another file. Then we had another script that would put that in an access database. We had a script that would run in the access database, do something else to it, push it somewhere else. And so like we had this like mousetrap set up, you know, <laughs> like the game mousetrap. 
and it worked. And, you know, people have been doing this kind of stuff for years and they still do it. But now there's all the security considerations. And, you know, so now you kind of need like better orchestration stuff because you really don't want to try to do enterprise design patterns in your shell script. You know, some college kid wrote freshman year. Some common tools in this space include things like Zapier, which I've used, IFTTT, which Will still uses, and Tray.io. I've not even heard of that one before. That's cool. These tools offer ways to either respond to incoming webhooks from other applications or to push data to other application endpoints. I think Zapier actually does both. Yeah. And a lot of times it depends on the the way it's architected. So like it, with Zapier, you know, you make, you use their SDK and you can do you know, either one way or two way integration with it. So like the to-do list app that I used to use only had, you could push stuff in, but you couldn't get stuff out. You couldn't get events when you checked something off. And I finally ditched them because of that. Cause I'm like, this, this is not useful, but most of that is still through, you know, some form of restful API. And you're generally going to interact kind of in the same way, right? Like they call your webhook, you call their webhook, uh, everybody's friends. A lot of times you also not even know that this is happening because your users may set something up and go, okay, I know here's the webhook. I need to call, go do the thing. And if it doesn't fail, you may never know. The next one is spreadsheets. And this is a very important because people in business understand spreadsheets and use them all over the place. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather had some that were printed out that he worked with. We found some going back to the early 50s. And especially with things like the the macros in Excel and stuff, they're going to try to bend spreadsheets to their purposes. Oh my gosh, I remember one of the very first applications I ever worked on, I was just sort of bouncing between front end and back end, helping wherever I needed. Like first job as a junior developer, we get to the end and we're like building out the reports and stuff. And one of the, the business people was very upset because she didn't have like full access to the database to go in and make changes. And so because she would like, make changes for reports and stuff. And it was like, all right, well, here, let's just print out everything for you into this spreadsheet. And then you can go build your report from that. And that made her happy. Yeah. You'll be surprised how happy they are when they can just get their data. Yeah. Like, and, and they can do their thing. And, you know, the, the nice thing is it's not your problem anymore. Exactly. And a lot of developers are really resistant to that. It's like, dude, like this is not work you're going to enjoy. Why are you? Yeah, I, I know. Like I, I remember like going through this and it's like, we can easily just print out like a CSV with all the stuff that she needs in it. It's not a problem. Like that's not, not a big issue. And like that led to this whole question of who owns the data. And it was like, well, they own the data, but we own the database. Like we yeah. own where it's stored, they own what's in it. Yeah. Yeah. You own the house, but we own the land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, that is such a weird discussion to have. It, it, it's really strange. And, you know, and, and I, I know people that have built businesses 
basically by going to companies and going, hey, what kind of stuff are you doing with a spreadsheet that you probably shouldn't be? Yeah. Right. Because they'll invariably somebody will screw up a formula and it's like, oh, yeah, now we owe $50,000 in taxes that we didn't think we owed because we screwed up a formula at the beginning of the year. Like a mm-hmm. company that has done that is also very receptive to you replacing that spreadsheet. And it, the thing about it is it's a very good way to come up with app ideas. And that speaks to the prevalence of this way of doing things. It really does. Yeah. Now. Excel is obviously still well known. It's still the probably the most popular spreadsheet out there. To my knowledge, Google, you know, Google spreadsheet might be getting there. But there are a ton of new web-based spreadsheet systems that people can use. Uh, you know, like I said, Google uh, Sheets. Uh, there's also Zoho Sheets, those kind of things. And a lot of them have more, have much easier to use uh, integration points. So, for instance, with Excel, you know, you're bringing in Calm and you're doing some other very weird, very old school things that are not uh, very comfortable to work with in a modern uh, you know, web development environment. Whereas with Google Sheets and some of these others, you can actually talk to these with you know, nice, clean APIs. And, and so it's often worth doing. Now, you may also be talking to them with GraphQL. However, uh, one other thing which Beige mentioned is that you may find in some cases that it's still easier to just export data as a set of comma separated values and then let the Excel file handle that, pull it in and let the people do their thing and and you don't have to worry about it. So next is dashboards. And the reason behind this is that a lot of stakeholders need to be able to quickly determine the state of the system right away, especially if finances are involved or if you're a financial institution. And they need to have it look good when they show it to their bosses. I know one one thing that we were talking about doing at my last job was, because we were an IT department, but was an app health dashboard. Yeah, we have one. Yeah, upper management could just look at kind of the runtime statistics and stuff around the applications. Yeah. I mean, a long time ago, this would have involved, you know, either integrating with Excel and by integrating, I mean, by way of CSV um, and then no. using the charts and graphs function. But, you know, now that's a little bit harder because a lot of times this data is scattered over disparate systems. And so it's really hard to pull it all in to the same Excel file and work with it. As a result, people still want to do that, but now with it being harder, you're going to have to find some other way. And you probably don't want to write this code yourself because it's annoying. You might do it with a reporting tool, but you know, most developers I know don't overly love having to build reports either. Yeah. Now, like you said, it's still being used, but a lot of your no-code applications are going to have their own dashboarding systems. Things like Bubble.io, Microsoft Power Apps, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and these tools often allow integration through webhooks and those kind of things. And a lot of them can also directly connect to databases and other data stores. So you may be able to effectively integrate them, and I put that in quotes, simply by shaping the data appropriately and either you know making it available in a view or a table, and then you point one of these tools at it. Yeah. The next one is social media and promotional email tools. 
And this is around because, you know, your marketing department needs to be able to manage things like ad campaigns and do that on multiple platforms. They're also probably going to need to be able to trigger campaigns based upon things that occur in multiple applications. Yeah. And, you know, there's been software for this for years. I mean, I can remember stuff in probably 2011, 2012 timeframe that was already in this space. And, you know, a lot of stuff is included with CMS systems or is available in the form of add ons. I know we were using one for WordPress, I think, to push to Facebook for a while. I don't know if it still works or not. Yeah, we um we were using Buffer. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We had a Buffer account and we we had it I think we actually had it triggered off the feed. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. Now things are a little bit more modern and so a lot of times you'll find, you know, APIs to aggregate, parse and manage social media and email outreach using commonly understood protocols, which is usually webhooks and RESTful APIs. So, for instance, you might have something that says, hey, when somebody on Reddit or Twitter, you know, ats us, send a message to our, you know, to our uh, marketing people or to our support people or those kind of things, right? Like it can be an entry point for a lot of other systems. Yeah. And, you know, rather than being designed from the ground up to be a software as a service application, with kind of APIs added later, a lot of the new tools that are available are actually built with a kind of API-first fashion. The intent there is so that they can be used with other web API-based automation suites, such as Zapier, which we've talked about a couple of times already in the episode. Yeah, in in general, you'll be interacting with these tools using webhooks um, so that they can send data to you and REST APIs so that you can send data to them. Although there are some newer ones that are starting to bring GraphQL constructs into the mix as well. I think there's probably a little bit of hesitancy there because one thing that happens a lot on social media is spammy type stuff. And Mm -hmm. so adding user-defined queries on top of that mix is probably not something that a lot of tech people (laughs) want to do just yet. They want to let somebody else kind of you know take the first arrows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Now, a lot of these tools function as part of some other package that your marketing or sales department already uses. They may be like we'll mention plugins for WordPress, Shopify, or other similar tools. And of course, they're also still the old guard of email service providers like MailChimp, which we've used in the past, who are constantly evolving their integration points. Yeah. I mean, they have some stuff that'll read off of a feed and like send the, you know, like your article to all your, you know, lists, mm-hmm. for instance. Yeah, I've seen that. I've not played around with it, but I, I do. I am familiar with it. Speaking of playing around, another area where you will see apps like this is voice, SMS, and phone applications. And this exists for a very good reason. Uh, Voice-related stuff is kind of a pain in the butt to deal with, frankly. And it's complicated to a degree that many dev shops really can't handle very well, especially when you want to respond to things like voice commands. Now you're starting to get like neural nets and those kind of things involved. And, you know, your average uh, React developer is probably not really (laughs) ready for that. Whether they want to do it or not is a whole other thing. 
but it just makes it hard to get developers. So something's critical to business operations. So you know, stuff like filing support tickets for an ISP, the company is likely to look for tools that let them build workflows without developers because they don't want development to push something that breaks their workflow in the middle of the day and costs them money. Now, some tools like Twilio have been around for quite a while. There's also an increasing need for more complex workflows, which it does allow for, but a lot of people aren't aware of that. And this has led to tools such as VoiceFlow, which lets you manage complex voice-related workflows through a graphical design tool rather than code. Yeah, can you imagine having to build like a YAML file to be like, okay, here's the prompt, and if they say these things, do these, and trying to deploy something like that? Like These tools let the types of people who are interested in that workflow manage it instead of you. The other nice thing is a lot of them can seamlessly integrate with other applications and allow a user to send text, voicemails, and even to do voice calls from inside your app. And you'll often integrate with these tools either using other no-code tools. Again, Zapier seems to be our favorite one this episode. Zapier makes you happier. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a nickel for that, uh, that endorsement there, guys. Uh, there you go. <laughs> or through the use of web APIs, or by including a widget in your website. Whether that is something low-code like WordPress or other normal web applications. Are you calling WordPress normal? Well, yeah, normal is a setting on the dishwasher, so we call it whatever we want. Fair enough, fair enough. Another area where you'll see uh, low-code and no-code tools is stuff like bug reporting and uh, you know ops slash DevOps uh, type stuff. And this exists because it's really hard to get this stuff right. Like you don't want to manage this with, with shell scripts anymore like we used to do. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard even for good developers to get this right. And it's really hard to justify it if it's not a core business expertise uh, that you have. Also, developers are often not particularly good at making errors visible to management in a way that actually lets management deal with the issue. In other words, <laughs> like giving your customer support rep or a senior VP who's talking to an enterprise client, oh, here's the stack trace, the error we had. Like that is deeply useless to those people. They're better off having something hooked up that says, okay, when we get this error, this is happening. You know, put a notification in the system here, you know, send an email to these people here and having a workflow that development doesn't really manage because we won't. Yeah, and automating that workflow makes life better for everyone. Yeah, um, oh. it makes you accountable at the very least. Yeah. Now, obviously, we've had logging for most of the time we've had computers. But like Will was saying, the goal here is to capture useful things um, useful metrics along with the simple log messages. These tools also make sure that you can record data that comes out of the low-code, no-code workflows, which can be very helpful when those are part of your workflow. Yeah, so like your voice chat app that you're connecting to and it pushes stuff into your system and it runs into something it doesn't expect, maybe it can dump that out to an error message that shows up on a panel somewhere and somebody actually sees it. Instead of the call just disappearing into the ether. Hello, Comcast. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. happened a few times. Uh, it doesn't parse hillbilly all that well. Yeah, no, I would assume not. 
You'll typically integrate with these tools using web APIs, whether in a browser or on the server or typically both. And you'll probably make use of some of their output yourself as a developer, especially when using tools specifically designed for development operations. So stuff like App Insights, New Relic, uh, you know, those tools can be a feeder for reports that developers use as well. Now, in addition to logging, performance monitoring and tools for seeing usage, there are a lot of other things within this category that are either no code or pretty much low code such as feature flagging tools, build pipeline, and tools for managing cloud resources. I've, we've both used those a lot recently. Yeah, so. more than we'd like in a lot yeah. of cases. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a thing. And speaking so, of something that is always a thing. The next one we're going to talk about, databases. Which is always the thing. Yeah, yeah. So why this is is important here is database design at the small scale isn't hard enough to be worth having a developer do it. Early on, especially when you're prototyping, it's often easier for people in other specializations to use one of the online databases to store various data. This sort of lets them, again, your model, we've talked about this in other other episodes, your model shouldn't directly reflect reality. But at this early stage, it's going to be in its closest form to reality. So your non-developers can can start it and then let it be optimized by your developers. Yeah, they can start it and get it up to a point where it has to be. Yeah. Which it might not get if they weren't involved early on. Um, Now, Mm -hmm. this does take some programming or programming adjacent knowledge. But it's often a lot less than you'd think because a lot of tools exist that can allow someone to quickly design a database and the screens needed for populating data into it inside their web browser. Tools in this space include things like Airtable, Directus, um, which you've already mentioned both of those, uh, Kintone, as well as CMS systems like Strapi and Contentful. Y'all, I have not used any of these, so I am not hoping I'm pronouncing everything correctly. A lot of headless CMS systems might, uh, they could be better described as headless databases, but they're typically marketed as content management systems because that's probably the most common use case for them. Well, like if your marketer type is like, hey, I need something to manage content, you're going to sell them a CMS. You're not going to sell them a database. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you just got to bear in mind that the language is not targeted at us, even though it's using our words. Yeah. And, yeah, it's just the way it is. And you'll typically interact with these a lot like the content uh, systems we discussed earlier, either by way of webhooks or RESTful APIs slash GraphQL, although some of them do offer direct access to an underlying data store, so like Postgres. So the last one we're going to talk about is probably the one that uh, most people use, I think, and that is e-commerce and payments. And this is this is around because payments are simply just, oh my goodness, they're horrible. You don't want to deal with them. You know, you don't want to have to deal with the personal identifiable information, PII, uh, on your own. Just the security concerns, the regulatory issues, 
And it's just expensive to make sure that they're robust enough and that they contain everything that you need. Yeah. And by the way, while it's expensive to make sure they are robust enough, they're even more expensive when they're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because now your business isn't, you know, collecting money that you probably advertised to, you know, get buyers for. And, you know, payments also gets really complex just with stuff like dates and times. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you don't think about, you know, time zones, international regulations, sales tax. It's not just PCI. It's like there's awful. And then you dig through that awful and there's more awful. Oh, yeah. It, it's just not worth it. Yeah. It's a clown car dumpster fire. And you don't want that's just not a good place to be unless that's like your thing. Like that's the only thing you're doing. Great. If that's not the only thing you're doing, you probably are better off, you know, letting somebody else handle this. Uh, you know, divisional labor is how we got to have a working civilization. This is part of that. You're just continuing a proud tradition. I this really can't <laughs> emphasize that enough. You don't want to do your own payments. And there have been tools for this sort of thing for ages, going back probably into the 90s, I guess, um, mm-hmm. because payments you know, have been necessary for that long. And they've always been obnoxious to deal with. You know, PayPal was one of the earliest uh, low-code options in this space. And you know, basically what they did back in the day is they said, hey, here's the HTML for a form that posts to our server. And you can you know, set up your little options and you know, here's, here's the payment options. We'll do all the other stuff. You know, it goes to our server. We ingest it. You know, then they went to you know, iframes and those kind of things because it turns out you don't really want to capture that data on your site in any kind of way. Yeah, yeah and it, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's a well-understood pattern. Yeah. Newer tools enable more complex workflows that can be tied back into your code while still allowing the sales and marketing people to do things like adjust pricing, create payment plans, and that sort of stuff without you having to write custom code to make that possible. I, I know it's really nice. Uh, I've worked with um, a couple of payment programs, processing companies, and I like the the ones with webhooks or that do the callbacks and getting the information set right is tricky. But once it's done, you don't touch it. Yeah, because they don't want to touch it either because it means an audit. Yeah. You know, like they're incentivized, like the thing that would normally hurt you hurts them in a way that makes them not hurt you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I feel like that leads to a stable system. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, In in a really messed up way, I I suppose. It is interesting. Some of the workflow stuff that can, that can really be done here just in terms of actually empowering your marketing people and uh, your salespeople. So like, you know, somebody calls out your, you know, somebody ats your company on Twitter because oh, your app doesn't do something that they want it to do. You're like, hey, that's a really cool thing. I wish it did that. And you're like, hey, I want to, I want to give this guy a discount. You probably don't want your programming staff having to drop everything to go, you know, make a gesture of goodwill for the company. Mm-hmm. But your marketing person probably wants it to happen. And if they can do it, you know, through the payment tool or through something else in that ecosystem, and it just pushes into your code. That's a pretty strong competitive advantage. Now, there are current options uh, that are better than PayPal. These are things like Stripe, uh, Chargebee, PayHere. You also have other systems like you know Patreon, for instance, which uh, we have one. Uh, if anybody's interested, that also kind of live in this space and are you know low code or no code and can mm-hmm. integrate back into other systems. 
And you'll typically integrate uh, with these by using either a browser widget or hopefully an iframe if it's collecting PCI information. And you can send data to them that way. One thing you didn't talk about is um, these things are, they also allow you to create invoices. Yeah. Which are really nice because then you don't have to handle that like within your own code. And you can actually create an invoice that with some of them that automates. So if it's just like a recurring bill, then it just, and it, it's like, it increases the invoice number and it tracks all of that for you for your different invoices. It's really nice and handles a lot of the reporting side too for you. So you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. And it can integrate with other tools. So like Zapier, you know, you could, you could hit a Zapier hook. You could push into a membership system. That's, you know, a no code, low code system so that people Mm -hmm. can get, you know, signed up there, put them on your email list. You send them a a chain of emails coming out of MailChimp that, you know, gets them into other stuff. Like you can literally, you can build full on apps. I I know a guy that actually built a complete no code system and was making like a thousand bucks a month within, you know, it it took him, I want to say it took him two days of work of setting up the no code apps. Yeah. And he he was making a thousand dollars MRR within like a month. Mm -hmm. So guys, no code and low code solutions are increasingly being used by businesses to reduce the expense required to quickly roll out solutions to business problems. While developers may at first panic at the thought, the reality is that many of these tools actually get rid of a lot of the tedious, boring and repetitive development work. Really, this is just the next evolution of frameworks. Developers need to learn what is available so that they can actually effectively help businesses in reducing their costs. That is, if you want to stay employed over the long term. It's simply a change in the landscape that you're going to have to adapt to. And that pretty much wraps us up. Beach, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? So guys, um, change can be scary, especially when it feels like you're being replaced, such as with low-code, no-code. When this happens, when the company you're working for decides, hey, we want to use this low-code solution or this no-code solution, and it's something new, something that, oh, hey, you know, we've not done this before. You have several options when change occurs, especially when change comes at you unexpectedly. You can get defensive and try to fight the change. And you know what? You know, you you may make some good points and you may win for a little bit, but eventually you're going to have to adapt or leave. Another option is you can sit back and just accept it, kind of rolling with the punches, rolling with the change. And while at first this seems like, hey, this is a, a good idea, the thing is you're not growing by doing this. And at some point there's going to be a change that you just can't accept. And you fall into the previous one where you get defensive and you try to fight it. Now, lastly, you can see change as an opportunity. Now, it might be an opportunity to move onward or upward within the same company. But it may be an opportunity to learn something new. See, guys, the thing about it is seeing unexpected changes as an opportunity will allow you to grow and make it so that the next time an unexpected change comes along, it's not going to be as stressful. It's not going to be, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? It's going to be, 
hey, this is really cool. I get another chance to prove myself. I get another chance to learn something new, to better my skills, to grow in this area. So the attitude you take toward your, the changes that come at you will affect you much further down the line. That's pretty much all I've got. Guys, check out the Aftercast on Patreon where we're going to talk about low-code, no-code, when to use it, and how to evaluate it so that you're using it properly. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.